Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. That song um, is drawn from Handel's Messiah. And um, Handel's Messiah was written by him in 1741. And it tells of the promise, passion, and triumph over death of Jesus Christ. The first part prophesies in this whole musical rendition the birth of Jesus Christ, part of which you just heard now. Uh, The second exalts his sacrifice for mankind, and the final section talks about his resurrection. It has been considered one of the great masterpieces of music uh, that we see uh, that comes into play. And so um, as we look at this type of thing today here, and as we're examining the conversation I have for you today, this is a subset in a way of our origin story, origin story dealing with Genesis. We're stepping away from that, but there's a connection, and I want you to see that before we're finished here today. And so this is a separate thing of three parts entitled King of Kings. Um, This passage, in fact, all of Handel's Messiah, the lyrics, if you go to it, are are almost entirely, in fact, I think they're entirely scripture. Um, There's there's no lyrics per se. All of it is drawn from scripture. There was a gentleman who who picked all these things out together and offered them to Handel. He was a friend of his. And Handel, out of that, wrote uh, this piece of music in an amazingly short period of time. And so the portion of song that you just heard is entitled, For Unto Us... Uh, child is born. And it's taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I'm going to ask if you'd stand one more time, please, for the reading of the Word of God. Speaking in this passage in Isaiah, for to us, or in the King James, for unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Father, this morning as we come before you, I pray that you would anoint your word and our hearts and minds to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So almost all the passages, in fact, everything is out of um, the scripture. Um, this passage is talking about a child being born. It's one of the preeminent passages for Christmas, and we're going to have a little different Christmas this time around, and uh, I'll explain that over the next couple of weeks as to why that's going to be a little bit different. Um, But this passage is talking about this child, this this princeling, is going to be a son, is going to be born, and the government is going to be on his shoulders. But interesting titlings here, wonderful counselor, mighty God, this, this princeling, this child, whoever's going to come, the name is going to be mighty God. And then 
everlasting father. There's some eternal aspect to who this person is. So this passage is what's referred to as a messianic passage or a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. Messiah means God's anointed one or chosen one. And hence the reason why Handel called his great piece the Messiah because the whole thing is basically about the Messiah. When we look at this term, king of kings, that I want to use here today, we find that it's used in scripture six times. And the one case that I want to bring to your attention here as we take a moment in the New Testament, it's talking about God the Father. It's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. To keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives an unapproachable life, who no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. This is referenced specifically God and God the Father, and the idea that there's this unapproachable light, that God is 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 in such powerful positive, overwhelming, like right now I can look at that spotlight and it blinds me just a little bit and I have no idea who's sitting in the balcony there right now whatsoever. You're completely safe right now. Um, Not anymore. Hi there. Oh, that's who you are. It's been a couple of years now, hasn't it been? No, no. (laughs) Actually, it's a friend of mine who's here all the time. Um, And so I can can black that we talk about blinding light, and I have this wonderful flashlight that's like five billion lumens or something like that. I love this flashlight. But this is talking about God whose very nature is so holy, is so glorious, is so magnificent that it's unapproachable. That by ourselves and in and of ourselves, We could never approach God because the darkness in us would be so repelled by the light that is in him. The next two passages where we see this referenced that I draw your attention to is in the book of Revelation, both of them. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. uh, And it says, they will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, kind of switches it here for a bit. And with him, we called his chosen and faithful followers. It's referencing the lamb, referencing Jesus Christ, the son of God who was sacrificed like a lamb for the sins of the world. And there's some conflict going on here, but Jesus now is being referenced as Lord of lords and king of kings. And there's another passage I won't take you to now because I want to save it for a little bit later time, but it's later in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And there, the same thing, it talks about him having a robe and on his thigh he has his name written so God has a Jesus has a tattoo uh, um, written king of kings and lord of lords it flips the language around again a bit there and so we see the king of kings title referencing to God the father we see it expanded or, or, or drawn in more specifically to Jesus Christ the other three references that we find are in Ezra Ezekiel and Daniel all these are in the old, date, old testament they all predate um, the New Testament, obviously, by hundreds and in some cases even a thousand years or more of time. Um, in these passages, we're introduced to two different characters. One is a guy named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the king of Persia, and he has this title, King of Kings. 
Um, the reason he would have had that title is because as a conqueror, he was pretty successful at conquering other kingdoms. And then they'd either set up a client king, or if the guy surrendered properly to him, have him take his, maintain your throne, but you answer to me. And so he's not just a king of a local area. He was the king of many kings, of many other kingdoms that he ruled and held on to. Now, Artaxerxes is referenced in Ezra and Nehemiah, and some of you you know, great biblical scholars will, will realize he's the king who allows Nehemiah to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. He's the one that allows Ezra to go back and to teach the law again and because the people of Israel had been torn from their land and taken off into captivity and they were in exile. And so Artaxerxes, now some of you are saying, wait, wait, Xerxes, oh, I, I know that guy. Yeah, he was in the 300, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, him and Gerard Butler, right? Um, no, that was his dad, okay? So Xerxes is the guy who, who gets a big group of people and he's going to invade Greece and he's coming down the pass and King Leonidas with his 300 incredibly buffed um, soldiers go on out to greet him and um, they seem averse to wearing clothing for the most part of any kind um, and, and the legend's a little inaccurate it's 300 of them but they have about 7,000 allies with them and so there's 7,000 some guys that go to the pass at Thermopylae and hundreds of thousands of Persians coming in under Xerxes and they hold the pass giving Greece time to get organized a bit eventually they get trapped in there and are about to be trapped the allies take off they're going to walk away those 7,000 but the 300 stay until they're completely overwhelmed and, and killed and going into legend but by doing this they stop the Persians from invading uh, Greece, hence saving Western civilization and uh, democracy and all that's part of that as a result. That is um, Artaxerxes' father. Um, also some connection with the book of Esther, uh, with that one as well too. We'll try and walk back to that in a second of time. But this is Artaxerxes, and he allows the guys to come on back. So he's really blessed by the people of Israel, and, and this would have been one of the templates for what Timothy and John and Revelation are talking about when they're saying king of kings, someone who would have been so vast they could have threatened the entire world with their armies and military um, of Artaxerxes. The other guy that you're going to find in this passage is a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we'll go to that in a second, but I want you to understand what they're comparing Jesus to is an image of people who would have changed the face of the earth that would have been the ultimate rulers of their time. This is what is being prophesied when it says a child in this season is going to be born and the government will be on his shoulders and he's be everlasting father, mighty God. This is all pointed to Jesus though as king of kings. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, as I referenced to you here, um, he's the king, and he actually predates Artaxerxes. He's the king of Babylon. He's the guy who got everyone taken into exile. He's the guy that invades and wipes out Jerusalem and Israel and carries everyone away, including a kid named Daniel at that time and three other buddies of his who are renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And... Um, they're renamed that way, the same way Daniel's renamed Belteshazzar, because the original names had biblical meanings, had godly meanings. And so they are renamed to reflect the gods of Babylon. It was an attempt to erase their spiritual and cultural identity. 
And, and I, I always find this intriguing because I think this is what happens in our world today. The world is trying to rename us and trying to oftentimes stamp out the culture of Christ and put a different name, it's different culture to us. And there's something that has to be held to, to what it originally means to be a Christian. They hold their faith, even though their names are taken over, they hold their faith. And so if Artaxerxes is the guy who replaces and pulls people back in, this king, Nebuchadnezzar, is the one that pulls them out. And, and while they're there, these particular guys, Daniel and these three other guys, are, are lifted up as, as kind of wise guys. You know, they have a wisdom, and they're educated, and they're sharp. And so they're being integrated into the palace structure. And the king would have had what he would have referred to as wise men. And these wise men um, had different names, magicians, other things of this nature, and their purpose was to advise the, the king or the emperor, particularly on spiritual matters, but, but anything. And, and some of them were truly wise men. Most of them, though, just had good parlor tricks and good little magic things that made it look like they were special and, and supernatural in some way. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a pretty bright guy. And I think he was starting to stumble on to what was taking place with this. Because what we find in Daniel chapter 2, where this is going to be referenced, this King of Kings phrase, and Nebuchadnezzar, and again, all this is kind of pointing towards Christ, this is the experience the Jews would have had of, 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 of these massive rulers and the idea that someone's going to come along that's going to be greater than that. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream one night. You ever have one of those dreams where... You wake up, and it was such a great dream. It was so sweet, so wonderful, that you find your emotions are actually tuned in a certain way that you just wake up, and it's kind of like, I feel great. This is going to be a great day, and, and everything's going to be great, and, and life is great, and, and I am great. This is wonderful. This is perfect, and I, I just want, oh, I just want to kind of stay in that dream. And You ever have one of those? And then, or, or maybe you have the other kind. You have one of those dreams where it's just so ugly. It's so weird. It's so twisted that you wake up with this horrible feeling that kind of marks your... Anybody, okay, so it's just me. All right, whatever, all right? I know you guys have had these dreams. I know you guys have felt this way. They mark us, and dreams were viewed in the ancient world to be visions from God, or from the gods. And there are truth. I think there are dreams that are truly something that, that God uses to speak to us. Sometimes it's just the bad pastrami you had the night before, okay? And so you have to discern. And again, we come back to that word, which is which. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has one of these not-so-great dreams. And he, he wakes up, I think, with a feeling of dread. And it worries him, it concerns him. What, what does this dream mean? And this is way before uh, um, Sigmund Freud was around, so he didn't know who to consult on it. So he calls the wise men in. He says, I had this dream. Uh, I need you to interpret for me. Tell me, what does it mean? And they say, no problem, King old buddy, old pie. Just tell us what the dream is, and we'll, we got we to interpret for everything, okay? But like I said, I think Nebuchadnezzar was catching wise to these guys. He says, oh, no, 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 not this time. You tell me what the dream is that I had and then interpret it for me you're like oh uh, we don't know how to do that one king okay you bunch of creeps here listen if you can't figure this out off with all of you I'm killing you all you're a bunch of liars and charlatans and so there's fear running through the ranks in the midst of this Daniel being associated with this group not directly but in titling at least Here's about this. And so he goes to the Lord in prayer, and God reveals 
the dream to him. And he's given the details of not only that dream, but the interpretation of it. And so I want to walk you through this for just a moment. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner, these other guys, can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. And then he begins to tell the guy, how freaky is this? Can you imagine someone coming over here and telling you the dream? I know what you dreamt last night. And they start to say it in detail. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, the future. And the revealer of mysteries showed you. And I was saying, well, what's it going to be like in the future? What's, what's going to happen next? What am I going to do? How am I going to be looked? What? Showed you what's going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation, that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. So imagine walking across a plain and there's this magnificent statue that's raising above him. As he gets closer, he's realizing that the head is made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron, partly of baked clay. And while you were watching and amazed at this, suddenly a rock was cut out and not by human hands. It comes flying across, it strikes the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashes them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff in a threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that the statue that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. Well, yes, I am. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, you are king of kings. But only because God's allowed you, there is one greater than you. I don't remember who said it, but there's uh, an atheist, someone who did not believe in God, who in our recent history of time here has said that, that he or she would prefer to see by far a believer in God as president of the United States. And they're saying, well, isn't that a little hypocritical? You don't believe at all? Why is that? Because I want the person who's going to be the most powerful person in the world, the person with the nuclear trigger in their hand, I want them to feel some accounting to someone other than themselves. And so what he's saying here is, you are accountable to someone greater than yourself. You are the king of kings, but there's one even over you. And then he says, you are, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise. In other words, it's representing the Babylonian kingdom. And another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. So there's silver, then bronze. Finally, there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it. 
Even as you saw some of the iron mixed with clay, as the toes were partly iron and partly clay. So this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. He's talking about the future, and he's talking about the fact that there are going to be various kingdoms that are going to arise. The Babylonian kingdom, the one that you rule, O king. But after you, it's going to become the Persians and Artaxerxes. Then there's going to be the Greek, and then there's going to be the Roman empires. He's lining all those up in unique aspects about each one. But then he says, in the time of those kings, in other words, in the time of this final kingdom, in the time of Rome, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning, he says, king, of the vision of the rock cut out of mountain, but not by human hands. Not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. And so as this thing is standing up there and the different references of the different uh, kingdoms are there, out of the mountain this rock is torn, but not with human hands, just comes flying around and smashes here. And it's kind of like the Twin Towers and it has a destabilization of, of its structure. It all just crumbles and falls down to pieces. But then that rock doesn't just go away or doesn't just stay there. That rock then begins to grow and it begins to expand until it fills the entire world. So when Handel is having his people sing, for unto us a child is born, and it talks about the government being on their shoulders, and it's talking about an everlasting father, it's pointing to the idea of a royal prince that is going to be born to rule, and that this kingdom is going to be unlike any other kingdom. That it's going to be involving a king who is king of kings, who's greater than Artaxerxes, who's greater than that of Nebuchadnezzar, that would overshadow anything else that would possibly be there. Something magnificent, something incredible, and he's going to be a different kind of king. Kings take from people to build what they want to establish. But this king's going to be different. Kings levy taxes. We became a republic because we thought that King George was taxing us too much without proper representation. The taxes that the American colonials were paying, guys, compared to the taxes that we are paying today, <laughs> folks, it would be better than our King George in that time. I don't know what your bracket is, but trust me, income tax didn't even exist in this country until about 100 years ago or so. So you can imagine. So the king's taking this. Well, now today we have just different kings. And, and they tax, they take. Kings take, they demand. But our king is a different kind of king. This passage in Isaiah tells us about the one who is to come, this king of kings, lord of lords. But it doesn't begin in the verse we just read, it begins earlier. And in chapter, verse 2 of that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, I love this one. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. What light? We just read earlier that God is unapproachable light. He's so brilliant, so blinding, so holy, we can't even get close to it. But somehow these people in darkness have seen a great light, and a light has dawned. That's 
the, the advent of Christ, God in the flesh, coming and encountering into the world, that those of us who are in darkness, that we don't have to be blown away by God. He's approachable. We can engage. We can have access. And then it goes into saying a child is born, a son is given. The government's going to be on their shoulders and everlasting father, etc., etc. And then the next verse after, chapter 9, verse 6, is this, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it, upholding it with justice and righteousness from time on forever. Forever. There's no end to it. There's no finish point to it. It's talking about Christ. It's talking about this moment that we're trying to celebrate here in these next few weeks of, of Christmas, the advent of this prince. Okay, quick question here for you all. And you can play at home if you want to, too. How many of you have a Catholic background? Hands. Okay, good portion of you, okay? I didn't come from a Catholic background. And I was not aware until just recently that evidently there is a feast called the Feast of Christ the King that is celebrated in the Catholic Church. And it was just celebrated two weeks ago on the 20th this year. How many of you good Catholics knew that? A handful of you guys, the rest of you guys. What is it? All right, come on. Now, now that's all right. They at least celebrate this. And it's interesting. They, they celebrated this. It was initiated by the Pope back at a time, history back, when a lot of the great houses of, of kingdoms had fallen and there was a lot of uncertainty and uneasiness. And so he made a point of trying to rise up that look at in the midst of all that's falling politically right now, all these other failures, Christ is still king and he's the one that we are to have our allegiance to. He's the one that doesn't fall. He's the one that we have a loyalty to. Look at how these last several years have been in this country. We are so desperate for a leader. We've been willing to sell our souls to elevate different leaders at different times. But what this festival's talking about is the idea that Christ is the king who never falls. He's a king that we can submit to. He's a king that gives to us and doesn't just take from us. There's something unique in regards to the idea of Christ as this king. We come this holiday season, we just think he's Jesus, this nice little baby that we can ignore and, and say it's so cute or do whatever else and forget the majesty and the glory that hides behind this, this incredible light that is coming in the person of this little child. Be involved politically. Do it. But don't ever forget where your first loyalty is to lie. Don't ever lose track of the fact that whatever elections are up and down, Christ is still king. I promised you a connecting point, and, and there is. There's one still to our origin story, because if we look into Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there's an interesting passage that says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Scepter is the, the thing of the king that he holds. It's his symbol of authority and power. And some of you might remember under Xerxes, Esther is supposed to approach him, but she's going unannounced. He hasn't asked for her to come. And when she walks into this king of kings presence, if he doesn't extend the scepter to her to touch, 
If he holds it back, she's killed. She's taken out and killed. How dare you enter my presence without my permission? But she knows, Esther actually approaches, and at one point in time, Xerxes holds out his scepter. She touches it, and they engage in a conversation. So the scepter is a symbol of royalty. It's their authority. It's all the things that are part of that. And it says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Who's Judah? Well, you got Abraham. you got a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, who's later renamed Israel by God. And one of his 12 sons, or the 12 tribes eventually become, one of them is named Judah which is where Jesus Christ descends from. And so he's sitting here saying, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So in that passage, it's talking about this scepter. It's talking about the idea that there's going to be one that's going to come, that's going to come out of the line of Judah, and, and, and this king is someone whose, whose rule will never end. The scepter. I'm caught by this because there's, there's something else. Is Jesus, the light now encased in flesh, the full majesty of God in this person, this king who offers himself in a different way. And at one point in time, he's taken before Pilate. And when the answers aren't properly forthcoming, they take him to the soldiers in Matthew chapter 27 and it says then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, dressed him up like a king and then twisted together a crown of thorns like a king and set it on his head and jammed it down and they put a staff, it says, in his right hand, a staff. They put a scepter into his hand O king, dressed in things and a mockery of this king. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They said, and then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again with the scepter. And if they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. The thing that was supposed to be a symbol of, of ultimate supreme authority, they beat him with. The thorns they placed, they, they, they recognize he's a king, but they mock him for that. It gets more intense and far more personal because then he's taken back up to Pilate and Pilate's got to pass judgment on him, but he really doesn't want to pass judgment on him. He wants to release him. John chapter 19 says it was the day of preparation of the Passover. and It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate's puzzled. He says, come on, take pity on the guy. He's beaten. He's, Shall I crucify your king? And what do they answer? We have no king but Caesar, they answer. There was a survey done. Family Feud, always a good source of authority. <laughs> Hosted by Steve Harvey. Can't get better than that. They're asking 100 people to respond to various survey questions, and the contestant had to provide the top answer to the following question. When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? And here were the four top answers. I'll start with the lowest one of these four. Two people said, the Burger King. Three people said, Martin Luther King Jr. Seven people said, 
God or Jesus? And 81, an overwhelming majority. Let me ask you, are you lonely tonight? Love me tender? Maybe you're nothing but a hound dog? Who do they name? Elvis, the king. We have no king but Elvis. We get so caught up in the politics and we should be involved, but the leader's pastor presence are not my king. Jesus Christ was prophesied to come as a child born, God in the flesh, not to terrify or dazzle us, but to teach us and to draw us. He doesn't demand and take. He gives even up to his very life. Yet we still stand and say, we have no king, but, but name your favorite political person on either side of the aisle. We have no king but my career. We have no king but my 401k. We have no king but my children or my spouse, my home or my car. We have no king but me. I decide my fate. And so one by one we fall. But there was one prophesied. We were told and promised that there was a king that was going to come who was going to be unlike Artaxerxes and unlike Nebuchadnezzar that was like no king you ever saw or heard of before. This king would not demand and take from us, but this king would give to us and rescue us and restore us. That God in the flesh, this blinding light and something that was able to be comprehended. So as we prepare to go into this holiday season, and you're thinking cute thoughts of little babies and mangers and, and, and adorable shepherds, you need to widen your lens. You need to see the glory that underpins this. You need to see the centuries, the millennia of promise and prophecy. You need to see the king of kings in the midst of this season. And you need to be challenged, and I need to be challenged on what has come before that king. What is it that this morning I need to repent of and say, God, you are not the king of kings for me. But this morning I will say, I will have no king but Christ. That I will have no king but Christ. That we as a people will say in this season of time that there will be no other king but Jesus. Before this mockery of a trial takes place, he gathered with his disciples for a time of quiet reflection. And we'll share that this morning to begin this season. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then just let this pass you by. That's fine. No harm, no foul. In fact, please do not partake if you haven't made that decision. That's between you and God. If you have, you don't need to be a member of this church. We welcome you to participate with us. All we'd ask is that you hold the bread and the cup. There'll be two little cups. The bread will be on the bottom, the wine on top. That you hold that, and we'll take of it together. 
But as we prepare to do this this morning, I want to encourage you. Consider who sits on the throne of your life. Consider where your allegiances are. Consider broadening your view of what this holiday looks like. Father, God, we, we take you too easily for granted and your grace too cheap by half. We forget the incredible cost that was paid for it. So Lord, I pray today that our hearts would be broken once again before you so that we'd be reshaped to enter into this holiday to truly embrace it with a joy and a freedom and the forgiveness of sin that we so desperately need, Lord. We welcome you into this time. And above all, Lord, we want to honor you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Call him Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. There are only two more Sundays that we'll be gathering together as a people in this year. Let's make the most of not only those Sundays, but all the days in between. Approach this holiday with an expectation and awareness, and then let's come together on Christmas Eve and just worship God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there's no other king like him. Father, I pray your blessing and your guidance upon us. Direct us in this season of time, I pray, and bring us together to a time of really honoring you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen.